My name is Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space, a show devoted to subjects that are hard to talk about because they make us feel vulnerable, ashamed, or afraid. This past two months, we've been exploring the theme of women's sexuality. My guest tonight is Stephanie Abadi. We're going to be talking about sex therapy. Stephanie is a social worker in private practice since 1985 in Yarmouth. She has a background in community organizing and advocacy. She's worked as a history teacher. She now sees primarily couples and individuals in Yarmouth, and she has a specialty in sex therapy. Welcome to Safe Space. Thank you, Anne. I'm delighted to be here tonight. I am, too. I want to start out by asking you, given your eclectic background, um, what led you to decide to study further and become a sex therapist? Well, it seemed that every job that I had, whether it was community organizing or teaching, is that I was the person that people would ask questions about sex to. And I was very fortunate to be able to train in couples work in um, St. Louis when I was there at the um, uh, St. Louis Institute for Family Therapy. And we were doing very good marital work asking a lot of questions about the sexual relationship, but no one was really doing any work to help couples with their sexual problems. Mm -hmm. So I was able to get further training in sex therapy, um, and it's been been delightful. I've enjoyed it. So you've gone beyond asking questions to actually making something new happen. Exactly. That's great. Well, so let's start out with um, what kinds of issues do you see in your practice? What, What are the... I know they're called sexual dysfunctions. Mm-hmm. What are the things that you are that people come to you with? Well, the most common presentation in a sex therapist's office is what we call um, hypoactive sexual desire disorder, which is low libido, or um, we're not having sex. Mm-hmm. Um, but in my office, the most common dysfunctions that I see are, I don't know, and we don't talk about it. Uh-huh, right. <laughs> Bringing it right down, right, right basic. So let's talk about both of those. So mm-hmm. I don't know. What do you mean? I don't know what? Well, the answer to that question might be that someone doesn't know what their partner likes, but also that they don't know their own bodies and what they like. Mm. And so one of the things that we start to talk about is how they were socialized and sexualized as children through adulthood and how that's been expressed in their relationships. Right. And then presumably helping them to talk about it together. Begin to have permission to find out what they like. Exactly. And, and to talk about it together because often couples don't have the language to talk about it and they are in a shame or blame cycle where they feel isolated from each other and mm-hmm. they can't talk about it constructively. Meaning that once they start talking, they start fighting. Possibly, or they don't talk and they make a lot of negative assumptions in their own heads and then proceed as if that negative conversation actually transpired. Right. So, um, for instance, if one of the two doesn't isn't interested for whatever the reason is, the other one might think it's because I'm not attractive to exactly. them anymore. I'm not attractive, or um, he or she um, is having an affair, or there would be mm-hmm. some other negative explanation. Yeah, certainly in my work as a psychiatrist, you know, we, we give medicines that have mm-hmm. sexual side effects all the time, and the right. partner feels like I'm no longer sexy, I'm exactly. no longer desirable, and it's so painful for right. them. Many commonly prescribed medications have sexual side effects that people don't anticipate. Right. Maybe um, it would be worth you saying what some of them might be. Well, certainly the common um, SSRIs, the drugs for depression, um, can cause 
low libido or problems with arousal or orgasm. Mm -hmm. And um, people don't don't necessarily expect that because their psychiatrists aren't telling them about that. Low blood pressure medications can cause lack of desire or problems. Meaning me medicines for high blood for pressure. For high blood pressure, right. Yeah. Yes. Lower your blood pressure. Yeah. Can cause problems with erection, with um, libido. And they're um, so common. That's true. So many Americans are on those medicines. Exactly. Right. So here you have a couple. They You come in, you talk to them about their childhood, you know, exposure to talking about sexuality. You learn that they never talked about it. It was almost never mentioned. They're not talking to each other. Mm -hmm. How do you help them start talking about this subject that feels so uncomfortable mm -hmm. for them? Well, one of the things that I'd first like to do is to ask them what they, how they define the problem. Um, mm. Because getting them to come to some agreement about what the problem is helps us to decide where we should put our attention. And then asking them to decide on what they'd like it to look like. If this problem were solved, what would your sexual life look like together? Uh -huh. And um, do you help couples arrive at the same vision of that? I can imagine that isn't always shared. No, in fact, having a different vision isn't necessarily a problem. Huh. Um, hoping, uh, helping each person to define what their vision might be and then helping them to talk about it could actually give them more possibilities rather than reduce them. What do you mean when you say that? Well, if, if we're talking about frequency, um, we're not having sex often enough. Often, each member um, thinks that the other person wants to have sex either more or less than they do. And when we actually talk about what the ideal would be, they're usually not so far really? apart. Isn't it amazing that mm -hmm. it's that basic? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> of course, it makes me think of that Woody Allen line in the movie mm -hmm. where she says, when someone asks her, and she says, you know, how often are you having sex? And she says, all the time. And mm -hmm. the husband says, never. And then it's just the exact same number. Right. I forget what the number exactly. actually is. Right. And everyone thinks that everyone else is having more sex than they are. Um, and the, the people study this. The statistics are um, for couples in their 20s, the average um, sexual experience is once or twice per week. And for couples in their 50s, it's probably um, once to twice per month. Very different. Okay. Yeah. I see. So that's a reality check. That is a reality. And people don't expect that their sexual life will change over the life cycle. And so as we age, there are adjustments. Uh, for example, by the time a man is 40, it is very common to have some some episodes of erectile uh, dysfunction. Now, that that's not a sexual problem. That's normal. Mm -hmm. um, but In other words, you wouldn't call it dysfunction. He just has uh, experiences where he starts losing his erection. Or has more trouble getting an erection or keeping yeah. an erection. That's normal over the life cycle. But what tends to happen is that people assume that this is a problem and then they get anxious about it and mm -hmm. we have performance anxiety. So I get anxious thinking about whether or not I'm going to be able to perform sexually and therefore I don't do it. I avoid. I avoid it because we avoid the things that make us anxious. Right. So there you have an experience where it's actually the man who's withdrawing from sex, mm -hmm. not because it's so often portrayed yes. in movies and in the culture that mm -hmm. it's always the woman who's less interested. Mm -hmm. 
But in fact, over the life cycle, it's more likely if couples are having sexual problems that it will be the man who withdraws from the sexual relationship because he's concerned about erectile function. And unfortunately, in our culture, there's an awful lot of pressure put on um, intercourse and um, male erectile function Mm -hmm. as the cornerstone of a sexual romantic relationship. Right. And is it, I'm sure that everybody differs, but my sense is that for men to experience orgasm, if they are struggling with this, it may be that intercourse is not the best way for them to have orgasm. Truly, and not, and for women as well, that um, more um, sexual foreplay, whatever that looks like, um, contributes to arousal and relaxation, which is necessary for orgasm. Orgasm is at the end of the sexual response cycle. Mm-hmm. That if you're not um, aroused, relaxed, and focusing on pleasure, it's very difficult to reach the reflex of orgasm. Uh-huh. I want to come back to that. Mm-hmm. My guest tonight is Stephanie Abadi. We're talking about sex therapy. This is WMPG, and my name is Dr. Anne. So you just said that what's important for orgasm is to focus on pleasure. Mm-hmm. Tell me about that. Well, pleasure is the relaxation response. And relaxation is the platform for orgasm to occur. If you're anxious or if you're thinking negative thoughts, for example, I'm not attractive or I'm, n- I'm watching myself not get aroused, what's <laughs> happening? <laughs> I'm watching myself thinking I'm taking too long, right, which is what so exactly. many women feel. I'm taking too long. And those thoughts... Are, are anxiety-provoking. They release adrenaline. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the adrenaline release causes the fight-or-flight response. So the blood flows to your arms and legs. Where you and not to your genitalia. Not to your <laughs> trunk where you need it for arousal. Uh-huh. So interesting. Mm-hmm. You know, my guest last week was speaking about um, breathing and how important breathing is to help connect your mind and your body. Mm-hmm. And she was saying that some women tense almost to cut off the negative thoughts they're having Mm. um, because it's so hard for them to focus their mind on pleasure. Right. There have been some studies about um, arousal in women, and women seem to be more distractible during arousal. Um, So focusing on pleasure can be one way of um, focusing the brain so that you support breathing and relaxation rather than focusing on the laundry that's not done or the other things that are on your plate. Mm-hmm. Um, making sure that you breathe encourages relaxation. Right. Focusing on what you enjoy encourages focusing on pleasure, which will support arousal. Yeah. You... Um, you mentioned that there are some common myths about sexuality mm. that you help people kind of realize what's mm-hmm. really behind them. And I wondered if you could share some of those with me. Well, one of the myths is that everyone else is having more sex than right. I am. <laughs> right. And that um, your sexual life over the, the life cycle will remain the same, that we're all going to respond at 50 the way we did at 20. Mm-hmm. And when we don't, we think that there's something wrong um, and that we don't try um, to engage either ourselves or our partners in a pleasurable sexual experience. Mm -hmm. Couples are likely to experience some form of sexual dysfunction over the life cycle. 
But whether or not it becomes permanent is all in how you look at it. One of my favorite um, sex therapists was Bernie Zilbergeld, who was the author of um, The New Male Sexuality. And he studied 100 couples who maintained their sexual relationship over the life cycle, some of whom had a medical problem that could have um, interfered with sexual function, and the other half who did not have a medical problem. And what he found in his study was that indeed, over his 10-year period, 50% of the couples did maintain their sexual relationship, but it didn't break down the way that he thought it would. 50% of that half did have a medical problem that could have interfered with sexual function. The other 50% didn't. And Mm -hmm. so what he found was the three things that that group had in common was that the couple valued their sexual relationship. They talked about it. And they took the time to do it, whatever it looked like for them. Took the time, meaning they scheduled it in, or what do you mean? Often. Or they took they um, took the amount of time that it would take for them to have a satisfying and pleasurable experience. They weren't looking at the clock, or they weren't thinking that this isn't um, the right way, or um, it's taking too long. So they prioritized it. They prioritized it. it, They valued it and made it part of an intentional plan, part of their relationship that they wanted to pay attention to. It's interesting. When you say they valued it, it feels like, well, which came first? Mm Because if it was good, it's easy to value it. But if it's not good, it's easy to not value it. That part is true, that when there's a sexual problem, um, couples are more likely to focus on the problem. Mm -hmm. Um, It's... Um, often like when you when you have money you don't think about it but if you're right. tight for change you think about money all the time yeah so the, having a sexual problem is more likely to cause people not to think um, sexual thoughts but to think more about the negative thoughts about yes. what's not happening or what's not and working you're in correctly. a vicious cycle right it's not very sexy or arousing to be thinking about that. Exactly. <laughs> no. Okay. So um, you said that the number one thing that people also come in with is mm-hmm. you know low desire. Yes. How do you understand that? How do you how do you think about that? Mm-hmm. And then what do you how do you help people with it? Well, in many ways, we're living in an overscheduled, um, over um, committed culture. Mm-hmm. We only get 168 hours in any given week. Mm-hmm. And on average, couples spend maybe 40 minutes a week talking to their children and maybe, um, you know, 20 minutes. 40 minutes a week yeah, talking to their children? Exactly. And uh, Boy, that's a devastating it is. small amount So if you of time. think about it, 168 hours and how many of those are devoted to sleep and work, there's not a lot of time left when you're geographically in the same place mm-hmm. as your intended and you have i like that you're intended (laughs) it's a great great word Mm -hmm. and you have the time and the energy to pursue um, a romantic experience and so being intentional about it is not our cultural um, erotic archetype we think it should be spontaneous it should be romantic we shouldn't have to talk about it and certainly we shouldn't have to work on it Right. So our sexual relationship tends to fall to the bottom of um, those activities that we 
pay attention to and are willing to spend time on. Yeah. Okay, so that's the context. So, And then when you think about people having low desire, do you mm-hmm. think it's a function of exhaustion? In many, many ways, it can be a function of exhaustion. If you don't get enough sleep, then you know, sleep becomes a survival need. Right. Sex is not most a parents of young children. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> sleep becomes an emergency. Exactly. Right. Exactly. And so low desire is not necessarily a physical problem, although it can be. Certainly the medications that we talked about earlier could yeah. cause low desire. But I'm often asking couples about how they spend their time, how they spend their time together, and where their um, sexual um, time is is budgeted. You know, is it only mm-hmm. Sunday morning? Um, right. Because that's the only time that they're both awake and the kids are still sleeping. It's a whole new concept to think mm-hmm. of budgeting your sexual time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Budget and sex don't often appear in exactly. the same sentence. Exactly. But yes. it is, a, it is a, a limited resource in terms of time and attention. It's a new way of thinking about valuing it. Mm-hmm. Right. And putting it putting it into an equation where you are willing to spend time and energy and effort on something that you feel is important. Yeah. Um, you know, we, there's a lot of, there are a lot of things that we practice yeah. because we want to get better at them. Right. But thinking about practicing sex or practicing being a good sexual partner um, doesn't really enter our erotic um, standard. No, so let's talk about that so in terms of practicing. Mm-hmm. Um, how would one do that? How do you go about practicing being a good lover? Well, one of the questions that I like to ask couples is, if you were a couple having um, the kind of sexual experiences that you'd like to have as often as you'd like, what, how would you be thinking, feeling, and behaving? Because okay, what do you mean? What would be an example well, of that? If you want to be a couple that is more likely to be sexual, then how are you spending your time so that you can encourage those opportunities? How would you like to be invited by your partner to be sexual? Um, how would you like to invite your partner so that you can begin to imagine what it would be like to solve the problem? Right, so even taking the time mm-hmm. to plan the invitation. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It's so, because that involves planning ahead in your mind. Mm-hmm. And I think people are off so often sort of just right. coping with what is immediately in front of exactly. them. Exactly, and desire. The definition of desire is the wish and the willingness to move toward sexual expression, either with oneself or with a partner. And we don't necessarily think about nurturing desire, either our own or our partner's. And so when there's a sexual problem, we're more likely to talk about what's not happening, more likely to talk about what he or she is not doing. Mm -hmm. As opposed to investing our energy and thinking, how could I invite him or her? Or what would I like to do um, in order to encourage sexual interaction? Um, the, The things that we need for a relatively successful sexual life are safety with a partner, Mm -hmm. a reasonably positive sense of body image, so that if you aren't feeling good about yourself as a sexual person, it's less likely that you're going to initiate invitations Mm -hmm. 
because you don't feel good about your own body image. That makes sense. So taking the mean, taking whatever measures you need to to improve your own sense of body image mm-hmm. is important. Okay. Um, and then the third thing that we need is the belief that sexual pleasure is available to both men and women because a lot of women have been socialized and sexualized to believe that um, sexuality is something that is in the domain of men and that women really don't have any of their own desire. This is a huge thing. Mm-hmm. This is a huge thing. I think in my work I've really come to appreciate how deep the roots of that are and how hard it is to really, for women to imagine that sexual pleasure is truly mm-hmm. available to them. It's, that's really true. Mm-hmm. And you know, women of a certain age were only given the word no as a means of birth control. And so those of us who are beyond our 20s you know, did grow up with some messages about controlling sexuality that, that may not be very helpful. Right, always on the no end of the spectrum. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, I was thinking about it in preparation for tonight's interview, and I was thinking about messages I received as a girl, and one of the ones that struck me was um, all the movies and references and literature to the fact that the first time would hurt, Mm -hmm. that there would be blood on the sheets, Mm -hmm. that that the man would have pleasure, Mm -hmm. but that the woman would have pain. And it was hard to want that. It was hard to feel excited about that at all. Exactly. Now, sometimes there can be, but that's not a universal truth. Clearly not, but it was so, I mean, this is, I remember when I was about eight or Mm -hmm. nine that I remember seeing some movie about it was all about whether the bride was virginal or not because there wasn't blood on the sheets. Right. And thinking, blood on the sheets? Mm -hmm. What is that? Right. It's frightening. That um, initial link with um, there's no sexuality prior to a committed marital relationship. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) And then after marriage it's really a duty exactly or it's for reproduction right so both those expectations that it would be a duty mm-hmm. and that it would hurt mm-hmm. meanwhile it would be great for the man uh, it really didn't foster the belief that you're talking about that pleasure would be really available, available. To both yeah so how do you help how do you help women arrive at that at that belief at that confidence well f- the first thing to do is to give people and couples permission um, to talk about it and to explore those myths. Sometimes people are operating with those myths and they don't know that those are really influencing their behavior today. Mm -hmm. So talking about it and helping couples to define um, what they like and what they'd like it to be. Right. So again, permission to talk about it, giving them education about what um, to expect over the life cycle, and then helping them with specific suggestions about what might help. So, practicing. Yes, um, I want to talk about that in a minute. Mm-hmm. My guest tonight is Stephanie Abadi. We're talking about sex therapy. My name is Dr. Ann, and this is Safe Space. So, let's talk more concretely about practicing. Mm-hmm. What are some concrete homework exercises that you give people? I always like to give couples homework, whether it's um, something to think about or talk about, but also I think you have to do things differently in order to change the sexual dynamic in a relationship. So one of the first things that I like to ask couples to explore is the notion of being the giver of touch. So if your assignment is to be the giver of touch, what I would ask people to do is to touch your partner for your pleasure, 
and have the partner be the receiver of touch. The partner has veto power over any touch that's uncomfortable or ticklish, but is there so that the giver of touch can explore his or her own sense of pleasure in having contact with the partner. Mm-hmm. Right, that's so different. Because mm-hmm. when, I think for women particularly, but maybe mm-hmm. I just know that experience more, the idea of giving is for the other person's pleasure. Right, right. And so we get caught up in performance anxiety. Am I doing this right for him or her? Right. Rather than trying to focus on your own pleasure in having connection with your uh-huh. partner. So when you have someone do that kind of exercise, are you talking about touch with hands or are you talking about any kind of touch? I actually don't give them very much instruction because I'm interested in how they interpret that. I see. Um, but what I'll be looking for with them is how did you think about it? Were you able to concentrate on your own pleasure? What did you feel both physically and emotionally? And um, how, uh, how did you stay with the experience? Yes. How and distracted were you? How worried about it? Right. How hard was it to stay oh, with yeah. it? To stay focused mm-hmm. on pleasure, which you've said is this important right. or prerequisite. Mm-hmm. Any other exercises? Well, often I will ask couples to um, explore their own bodies ev- e- in private um, so that they can figure out where they get the most pleasure. And I'm not just talking about their genital pleasure, but also, but whole body, because the skin is the most important sensual organ. Mm. The brain's the most important sexual organ. So getting to know your own body, getting to know how you feel about body image, uh, and then being able to talk with your partner so that you can advocate for yourself makes Mm. you Mm-hmm. makes you better able to increase your partner's erotic ep- um, repertoire. Right. So last thought, as you talk about the mm-hmm. brain is the most important sexual organ, tell me just a little bit about fantasy mm-hmm. and what you tell people about that. Well, fantasy isn't the same as doing the behavior. Being a, And if desire is the wish and the willingness to move toward sexual expression, being able to entertain sexual thoughts and feelings Um, as a way of encouraging desire is perfectly normal and natural um, for people. Some people get very confused about whether fantasy is a good thing or a bad thing. I think it's all in how you frame it in your relationship or with yourself. That being able to think about sexual pleasure is really a prerequisite to desire. Uh Because I know so many people feel guilty as if... Right. Imagining someone else yes. in order to begin to access mm-hmm. desire is a betrayal. Mm-hmm. And so they try to shut it off. Right. But in, it, it's not the same as doing the behavior. And so being able to think about it is actually um, an important tool in your own sexual life. Uh-huh. So you encourage people that that's okay. It's mm-hmm. not a betrayal of, the, of your intended. Yes. That's wonderful. So in closing, Stephanie, please mm-hmm. tell me, are there resources you'd like to share with people, books or websites? There are. There's some very good um, books for couples out. Um, one that I like very much is by Domina Renshaw, and her book is called, improbably enough, Seven Weeks to Better Sex. And that <laughs> is a really good... And it's good, actually good. Yes, it's a very good illustration of sex therapy 
um, techniques and exercises. Great. And a couple can use that together to improve their sexual experience. Wonderful. And is there a website or a way that people can contact you? They can contact me through my um, office at um, 846-6447. Wonderful. Stephanie, it's been such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you for inviting me. It was delightful to talk with you. Great. My thanks tonight to Jen Hodson for mixing the sound and Maurice Lennon for the music. My name is Dr. Anne. This is Safe Space. If you'd like to contact me to get more information or to suggest a new topic for the show, please email me at drannewmpg at gmail.com. That's dr.annewmpg at gmail.com. Next Wednesday at 7.30, I'll be hosting Julia Chaffetz talking about sexual assault. Coming up next is Money Talks with Allison.